Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk with animator Ken Blakey about his work on the animated film Louisa, An Amazing Adventure. Then we turn to our monthly roundup of movie news. Jeff will give us an update on 1917, which is filming locally. I'll be talking about a new cinema version of Jane Austen's Emma and Graham. No, that's too good to spoil here. You'll have to keep listening to find out why this is funny. After that, Elijah returns and we discuss another screen classic. This month, Tron and Tron Legacy. Oh, God, Graham will once again be in his element. (laughs) (laughs) I sure am. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm Jeff. Wait, I'm not saying that. Who wrote this? Uh, I only wrote it, Neil, because the fans told me to. <laughs> There's a lot of appreciation for our growing team. Don't you mean our waistlines? No, Graham. I've been speaking to some of our listeners, and do you know what they said? We want to hear more from Neil about the sports movie debate and Oscar selection wins. Stop mentioning Mel Gibson. Funnily enough, it was the exact opposite on that (laughs) last point. Instead, there have been many positive comments about our growing list of contributors. So I just want to take a couple of moments at the start of this podcast to shout out to all the people who have given up their time for us and the show. This sounds a bit like the members of the band introduction that goes on and on forever. A bit like Jeff, really. Thanks, Neil. And of course, in such a scenario, you, of course, would be the roadie, the person who follows me around, hoping some of the greatness will rub off on you. I think it's best you leave the rub-off comment out of this and go back to the main point, Jeff, before I lose the will to live and to edit further. (sighs) Fair enough. So just a quick shout-out to the other members of the team, I mean band. Lucy, who, of course, has her own section at the end of the month show and does occasional reviews with us when Graham and Neil are too chicken shit to do them. (laughs) Recently, we have strayed off the horror theme of Lucy's section, but trust me, this is about to come back with a vengeance. Then there's Steve from Cineworld, who lets us know what is upcoming in the cinema every other month, and he also keeps us informed of the important Children in Need charity work that Cine will do. They are our longest-serving contributors. I'm amazed you haven't upset them with your ridiculous views. Well, there's time. I did think, Neil, the Vice discussion was close. Anyway, <laughs> back to the team. Our newest contributor is Elijah from America. Elijah's our classic movie frontman, which features in this, our mid-month show. Coming up this month from him is a fascinating discussion about Tron and Tron Legacy. Then we have our team who have their own pod shorts. Phil Foster, who tackles a wide range of subjects and has seen more films than the three of us combined. Coming up in a future edition, Phil will be talking about his marathon appraisal of the Coen Brothers movies. Last and certainly not least is Phil Stubbs. Phil is on a little break at the moment as he finishes work on his first film, Last Chances. Don't worry, he'll be back with his director on director slot before you notice he's gone. And where next we'll be talking about Tim Burton. A great team, and thank you all for your effort you put in for us. And I understand we're adding a new person to the team shortly. Yes, more on that next month. Our team is expanding, but let's look back. So here's some stats about the last 13 months. We have produced one day, 10 hours and 46 minutes of shows. We've done 44 interviews, and we have referenced 1,930 movies. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, what you, our listeners, can't see at the moment is Graham in front of this huge swingometer, <laughs> like it's an election, tracking all these stats. So we'll be up to the minute for future shows. But seriously, thanks to everybody out there for listening to us. A quick music break before we go to our main interview for this month. Our featured interview this month is with animator and director Ken Blakey about his work on the animated feature Louisa, An Amazing Adventure. The film is based on an incredible true story which took place in 1899. The villagers of Lynmouth, in the most treacherous of conditions, had to take a lifeboat 14 miles overland to Porlock Weir. Ken has had a lifelong fascination with this story. A couple of years ago, he was hired to make this incredible animated feature. Let's go over to Jeff for the interview. Hello, and today you're at the Flix team are talking to Mr. Ken Blakey. Now, Ken is the animator of Louisa, An Amazing Adventure, and this is an incredible animation film. And Ken, I understand you're the director, animator, and editor. Welcome to the show, and thank you very much for your, for your time on this. You're very welcome. So Louisa is an incredible true story. Can you sort of, in a nutshell, tell us a, a little bit about what it's about? The film Louisa is about uh, a lifeboat. In 1899, uh, a lifeboat was taken from Lynmouth uh, across Exmoor to Porlock, which is a distance about 14 miles, and it uh, re- requires going up a, a one-in-four hill and down one in four hill with hairpin bends. The intention was to take the lifeboat from Lynmouth, where, due to a storm, the lifeboat couldn't be launched. Uh, and the uh, coxswain of the lifeboat decided that Porlock was a more sheltered bay, and they'd be able to get the lifeboat out into the sea at Porlock. Jack Crocombe, who is the coxswain, a crew of about 14, and 100 volunteers plus 18 horses set off from Lynmouth between 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the evening went up Canterbury Hill, which is the 1-4 hill, up to the top of Exmoor, across the, the moor, and then down Porlock Hill, which is the, the 1-4 hill, down into Porlock, and launched the boat from there. But on the way, they had to cross Exmoor in a storm at night, and they only had on-fired lamps to, to light their way. And uh, the storm was so severe, they had to have one person designated to go around and relight these oil lamps. And on the, the way across Exmoor, they had to go through the country lanes as they would have existed at the end of the 19th century. Quite a lot of the lanes had to be widened to get the lifeboat through. So they had a, a crew of about uh, a couple of dozen people who were sent ahead with picks and shovels to widen the road. There was various bits of the route where they had to actually take down stone walls to get the boat through. At one point, around about County Gate, which is on the top of the moor, about halfway across the journey, they had to actually take the lifeboat off its carriage because the carriage was too wide to get through one of the lanes. And they had to send the, the carriage across the moor to the far side of this particular part of the lane. And to get the boat through this lane, they had to drag it by hand on wooden skids. So they were, they were having to pull the boat by hand off its wheels uh, through this part of the particular part of the journey. How many people were doing that, Ken? So they set off, as I say, with 100 volunteers and a crew of 14. Once they got to the top of uh, Countersbury Hill, most of the volunteers actually gave up. It, it had already taken them four and a half hours, approximately, to get up to the top of Countersbury Hill, and most of the volunteers uh, turned back. So they had the crew of 14, 
and probably a dozen or so volunteers who carried on. So there's probably about 30 people in total, uh, plus the horses. Uh, so it was a, it was actually quite a, a, a small number of people that actually had to do this. On the, the journey across the, the moor, they actually, uh, four of the horses that they started off with actually died due to the effort and the, the, the conditions. One of the volunteers ended up with a broken leg on the way up Countisbury Hill. One of the wheels of the carriage actually came off and injured this person. So they, they had quite, a, quite an amazing voyage. Uh, in Porlock, they had to actually knock down part of a, a cottage to get the, the lifeboat through. And uh, when they got to the, the bay, they discovered that the, the coastal road they were going to take had been washed away by the storm. So they had to take a detour back inland to get the boat to a place where they could launch it. So it was, it was a, a Hollywood-style epic movie in the making. It's, it's an incredible story, and that's that's kind of where the starting point of the, the film was. Originally, the uh, Great British Entertainment, who was to make the film, they had originally considered the possibility of doing a live-action film, but the, the, the problems of actually doing it were quite yeah. severe, and in the end, it was decided that to do it as animation would actually be a more sensible route, because you can, you can depict things in animation, which for live-action is, is very difficult. And, and it would be extraordinarily expensive. The animation also took a slightly different direction in that we decided that instead of to be telling a, a documentary-style film, which just re requests the history, they wanted a, a slightly more human story. The adventure is actually told from the point of view of Jack Crocombe's daughter, who is about nine years old. That's May, isn't it? May is the, the little girl. And, and the idea behind the story is she knows her father is the coxswain of the lifeboat, but she always worries about him going out to sea. So, so she's always thinking about, you know, his, his safety. So the story is told from the point of view of her trying to make sure that her father is safe, really, on, on this adventure. And my understanding, the way you filmed this is with animation and music, but no dialogue. That's right. To a certain extent, I mean, one of the things we considered, well, one of the things, like I said, was the, the fact that if we did it completely authentic, with the correct kind of voices, you would have had to have quite a strong Devonshire accent, which for most of it would be very difficult to understand. Or the alternative is to have people talking in a modern sort of way, but that wouldn't really sort of convey the, the history of it. So it was, it was a bit of a dilemma. And in actual fact, other uh, considerations, some of them technical, uh, in that if you uh, have to do dialogue, you end up with a different kind of film. And because we really watched a very visual film, if you don't have people talking so much, you can actually concentrate on the visuals and not so much on people talking. Because if you have uh, lots of characters talking, you end up with quite a lot of shots in the film of just people's heads as they communicate back and forwards. Then sort of lose the, the dynamism of the, the imagery, really. Uh, and it's because it's such a dramatic story, it actually works better, I think, from the point of view of the visually uh, interesting scenes because you're you're following the story from the point of view of action rather than people talking. Yeah, certainly that's quite effective in the bits that I've seen. So did Michael McDermott... He composed uh, the music at the end of the film. We had a, another chap called Toby Dunham who actually did the music for the, the duration of the film. So Toby Dunham created all the music you hear through the film. There is a song at the end, which is for the end credits, which was done by Michael McDermott. Right. Yeah, and, and I've heard that. That's really, really good, really yeah. good song. And that's uh, it's that Elna Grant who 
That's, that's correct, yeah. yeah. So when Toby was doing the music, was that alongside the animation or did you complete the animation no. first? No, in actual fact, what, uh, I mean, it's, it's always a difficult thing with music because there's, there's two ways you can tackle animation and music. You can either do the music and then animate to the music or you can do the animation and then the music follows the animation, which is the way we went. So in effect, the film was complete when Toby Dunham got a, a, a version of it. And he composed music to follow the animation. And, and, and both ways work, but if you compose the music to follow the animation, the music then really does support the animation. Again, you know, from what I've seen of it, it, it just looks tremendous and it's very, very striking. Yes. When you were researching this, it sounds as though, and from the way you've explained the story to us, you found out quite a lot about the real events as, as you went through it. What was the most surprising thing you found as you were researching? One of the things which, which came out very strongly in, in going through this, because the, the film I made, I did that what, about two years after I'd already done a documentary about the event. So I'd, all, I'd already researched the, 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 the true history. And from that and making this animated film, the thing which stands out is how many people in the area still have quite a strong connection with the story. Uh, I came across people who, whose relatives had been involved one way or another. I went to the premiere of the film uh, when it was shown in, in January. And one of the people who turned up, her great-grandmother had lived in Porlock when the lifeboat came down Porlock Hill. And she'd actually been uh, seen the lifeboat come down and she'd been leaning out of her cottage window, shouting at the crew as they went past, telling them, telling them not to damage her garden wall. <laughs> so you come, come, come across all these people who, who've got some sort of connection with it. We know of at least six relatives who you know have, have still got the, the history behind them and one lady who lives in Coombe Martin who and her uh, great-grandfather was helping to build lighthouse at Fallen Point and he actually helped pull the, the lifeboat up the hill so we got photographs of him and you know she talked about his involvement etc so all these people who got some sort of connection with the story are still in the area which is quite fascinating. Absolutely incredible. So, so for the making of the film and, and the animation, what software did you use to, to create this? The main software which was used is a piece of software called Blender, which is a 3D modelling animation piece of software. It's not a normal piece of software you'd use to produce this kind of work generally. Most, most film companies will go for different software, but this, this particular software I've, I've sort of tinkered with before I did this project but it is a very, very powerful bit of uh, animating and rendering software. One of the advantages, anybody can actually get hold of this software. It is open source software, so it is very easy to get. It is a very, very well thought out piece of software. Yeah, it would have uh, pro produced some very striking animation. In a way, I never really pushed the software as far as it could go. I know that it can do a lot more, but in terms of actually producing the film, the, the, the emphasis was always on telling the story rather than trying to be a technical exercise in rendering or animation. So in, in, in some respects, I mean, if you look at th things like Disney, obviously they're, they're taking animation much further. We would never actually go that far. But it, it actually produced an awful lot of very good results and very, very quickly as well, which was a very important thing about making the film. We had to do it very quickly. How long did it take you from start to end to make it? In total, including all the different aspects of making the film, from modelling to animating to rendering and processing, etc., it worked out around about 10,000 hours. Wow. Which That's... is, which is uh, two years, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two, two years of my wife going, is it finished yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's, that's, that is amazing. Uh, a quick question, if I may, on one of your early starts in your career. I understand you worked on some animation in Danny Cannon's Judge Dredd? Uh, yes, the, there is a sequence in there where there is a computer-controlled vault and the, the bad guys sort of have to unlock this. And so there's a sequence of uh, the head judges having to enter their security codes to enter this particular part of the uh, facility. And so on the computer screen, there's an animated sequence of them uh, unlocking this. So that's, that's my animation on there. Not to watch that again. It's about 10 seconds where it is full screen. So it's, it's quite odd. <laughs> <laughs> What's next in the pipeline for you then, Kay? At the moment, I'm, I'm just writing books. I'm, I, I write books as well. So uh, as well as doing films, I, I do books. Uh, and that's what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a rest from making film at the moment. What type of books do you uh, write and publish? To a certain extent, I write for myself, but I, I, I do sell them. And, and I have had people come back and ask me to do a, a continuation of a story. There's, there's one book which is uh, called Mr. Mayor, and, and that is really very much a piece of entertainment. It's a series of, well, two books so far, and the third one is, I'm just working on that one at the moment. And that concerns a, a character called Mr. Mayor, and it is basically about the bureaucracy and nonsense of modern life. Uh, basically, if you watch the politicians talking about Brexit, it's, it's like that, but but uh, much more realistic. <laughs> uh, there's, there's you, another, you haven't got uh, Chris Graylin in there, have you? No, no, no. There's, there's no. there's no real people involved in it. It's, it's all imaginary. It's, it's, so it's, it's totally safe. You can't, you can't see it. it actually talks about anyone in particular. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a book of short stories out at the moment. And uh, that was inspired by one of my wife's dreams. We ran a B&B for, for quite a few years. Yeah, and uh, well, her dream was that the Queen came on a, a royal state visit to the to the B and B. So the the short story is about the the Queen turning up, and her security guards sort of going around the kitchen saying, "Oh, you can't have uh, soy milk. Queen doesn't like soy milk. Have to get rid of that." <laughs> <laughs> so so it's all these bizarre things. But there, there's, there's 26 short stories which uh, are all slightly quirky and a bit of a twist. Excellent. And the bizarre thing is, all 26 come from things that I either like come across or people have said to me or explained that it's part of their life. So they've all got a slight connection with reality, but it's, it's all those quirky bits of life you come across, which you think, well, that's a bit weird, but it actually did, does sort of happen. The third book is a bit of a monster book. It's about 600 pages. It's quite a complicated story. But that one is about encryption, basically. It, it takes the idea of a wartime decrypting technology which in this particular story is still in use so it's 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 so top secret that even even the people know about bletchley park this one is still still hidden away from the public because it's so powerful what's the title of the book ken that one's called codename prospect that one took about five years to write the bizarre thing is the the basic idea behind it is a way of breaking into encrypted messages basically or, or, or reality but it is based upon something which is actually real so it is it is potentially possible but it would be very very difficult and what's the title of the short story book as well for any of our listeners who want to track that uh, down the, the short story is called uh, some odd shorts and there is a story in there which is actually called some odd shorts and it's about a pair of shorts <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, for anybody who wants to track those down, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. And Louisa's uh, great film. Everything I've seen of it looks great. Really hope it does the business because it's it's a very worthwhile story. It is one of those stories which, if, if it wasn't a Hollywood movie, 
I mean, you you would assume it it couldn't possibly be real, but it's it's it is real, and it's not it's not a Hollywood movie. It's 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 just part of our history in the area. So, Kent, thank you very much for your time on the show, and good luck with the film and the books. I'll certainly be tracking down the encryption book. Thank you. What an amazing chat and an incredible story. We'll give you more updates on Louisa and Amazing Adventure when we get them. Okay, lads, into the suits and ties for movie news. Oh, what's that music? That was really good. Yeah, there's a bit of a story behind that, Neil. That's our new movie news section, Music. Does it feature on the swingometer? <laughs> it's a new music created and played by one of our listeners in Australia. So thanks, John, for your contribution. Well, thank you very much. OK, movie news. I will start this month back in January, hopefully not too far back for you, Jeff. We reported on a new version of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which Ben Wheatley is now filming. It appears that isn't the only classic story currently before the cameras in the UK. In March, a new version of the Jane Austen novel Emma started filming. Hang on, didn't they make that a couple of years ago with Gwyneth Paltrow and Ewan McGregor? If you mean a few years, 23, then yes, Greb. (laughs) It was previously made back in 1996, although a better modernised version was made a year previously under the title Clueless. Not surprised, Neil, you'd remember a title called Clueless. (laughs) Perhaps a little too close to home. Anyway, this version, being made by Quality Company Working Title, has a fantastic cast. Taking the lead is rising star Anna Taylor-Joy, best known for her work in such dark films as The Witch, Split and Glass. So this should be a major change of pace for her. Also cast are the always excellent Bill Nye, Johnny Flynn, who made a huge impression in last year's film Beast, Gemma Whelan from Game of Thrones, Mir Goth, who is excellent in the Suspira remake and the underrated Secret of Maribone, and Rupert Graves from TV's Sherlock and the comic actress Miranda Hart. Wow, what a cast. Well, it has to be better than the earlier version of Emma, which, let's be honest, was bland. I don't think this will be called bland. For those who don't know the story, it's a romantic comedy about a young matchmaker, the Emma of the title, who lived at the turn of the 19th century. It's adapted by Man Booker Prize winner Eleanor Catton and is the directorial debut from Autumn to Wild. What we couldn't find out, despite all our best efforts, is where this movie is currently being filmed. If any of our listeners know, please pass on the information to us. After that bit of culture, let's hand over to Jeff for his news. Back in November, we reported that Bond director Sam Mendes was going to make 1917 a World War I film with Steven Spielberg producing. Well, since then, we have found out that filming has just started not too far from here on Salisbury Plain and will continue up to the beginning of the summer. Maybe we should try for a set visit, lads. Uh, not a good idea, seeing as those World War I trenches might set off an upsetting flashback for you. <laughs> uh, you need to remember, Neil, I'm not the oldest person here, possibly the youngest. <laughs> However, it seems that setting up the filming for this Hollywood epic hasn't gone that smoothly. The local Brexiteers have complained that the recreation of the trenches and subsequent explosions required would damage heritage sites like Stonehenge. After all, the Daily Hate, sorry, I mean racist, I'm sorry, I mean male, um, recently reported that this was being made within two miles of that famous monument. Now, I know it's amazing, and I think you'll be shocked, lads, but the Daily Mail actually got its facts wrong. No. Yeah, I know. 
The actual filming takes place over five miles away from the site and poses no danger whatsoever. And the other side of the main road that goes along there as well, isn't it? And the explosions are not real explosions, they're more flashes and bangs than explosions. So apart from that. But apart from that, yeah. Uh, This is amazing for a newspaper that prides itself on its accuracy. Indeed, Graham. A real shame the film has caused this level of upset, especially when you look at all the money this is bringing to the local economy. Many extras from the surrounding areas, for example, are signing on as soldiers for the film. Just think, Neil, if you were younger, thinner, taller, more handsome, you possibly could have been cast. (laughs) Anyway, the problems have been solved and filming is now underway. As for the actors, I mean, yet again, like Emma, what a cast. We previously mentioned George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman. Now add the following. Richard Madden, recently big on TV in uh, The Bodyguard, I believe it was, Lance. Yeah. Yeah. Benedict Cumberpatch and, of course, was in War Horse with Spielberg a few years ago. Mark Strong, Andrew Scott, Colin Firth and Daniel Mays. With Roger Deacon and Thomas Newman on board behind the cameras, this looks like being one of the big films of 2020. One yeah. final comment. Sam Mendes will be taking a break in July from filming to give a talk on film music at the Cheltenham Music Festival. Tickets are on sale now, and this is not to be missed. OK, Graham, last month you said you felt cleansed with your superhero <laughs> film news. How poor do you feel this month with your script? Gibson off, Jeff. You must spend all month looking for something for me to report on which you know I will hate. As if I would do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So after Mel Gibson, Gerard Butler, I now get to add Bruce Willis to the list. There was a time when I looked forward to a Bruce Willis film. A long time ago, though he made such films as Die Hard, the perfect Christmas movie, Twelve Monkeys, Sixth Sense, were all great films. Well... I am told the last one was was, was too scary for me to watch. (laughs) But gradually it all went downhill, ending up with last year's dreadful remake of Death Wish, a film so bad even our own occasionally right-wing nutjob didn't get to watch it. Only because it didn't come to a cinema near (laughs) here. And how did you know that was me? (laughs) But if you think that Death Wish is bad... Let's just run through the next batch of movies coming from Mr Willis. First up is Motherless Brooklyn. You may have slipped up here, Jeff. How so? This is based on an award-winning book. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award back in 1999 and has a great cast, with the exception of Bruce Willis, of course. It is a detective (laughs) novel about a private eye called Lionel, who has Tourette's and who bring together a group of friends to help him solve the murder of his mentor. Bruce Willis will play the role of mentor, and the character of Lionel will be played by Edward Norton, who also directs. Also starring in Motherless Brooklyn are Lucy's drinking buddy, Willem Dafoe, Alec Baldwin, Bobby Carnival, and Leslie Mann who was so good in Welcome to Marwen earlier this year. As the film is opening in late November, there is already the prospect of awards buzz for this movie. Graham, it has Bruce Willis in the cast. When was the last time a Bruce Willis <laughs> film was nominated for anything other than the Razzies? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's wait and see. If this does turn out to be good, I want this movie news vendetta to at least be paused for a couple of months. Looking to the next film, and I see I'm not going to be so lucky, Ten Minutes Gone is a thriller about a bank robber, Willis, who suffers a blank of ten minutes in his memory when a robbery goes wrong. Bruce, or as he is known in character, Rex... Who's a good boy, then? ...has to work out what went wrong in that ten minutes and who betrayed him. 
The movie is directed by Brian A. Miller, who is also responsible for those other recent Bruce Willis classics, Reprisal, The Prince and Vice. No, not that one, Lucy. (laughs) Unlike them, Ten Minutes Gone is almost certainly going to be a film which bypasses cinema for the bottom DVD shelf in Poundland. (laughs) Currently, Bruce Willis and director Brian A. Miller are in New York making another action classic called Trauma Centre. Jeff... This is just shite. But it's your shite to own, Graham. <laughs> right. I'll get my own back when I edit this show. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, yeah, the plot, in the loosest possible use of that term. A young woman witnesses a crime involving corrupt cops, following which a senior policeman, Willis, naturally, is assigned to protect her. I will give you two more reasons why this will be bad. One It co-stars Steve Guttenberg, and two, both the movie and Ten Minutes Gone are funded by MoviePass. Remember them? Jesus, what a crock of shit. Oh, wait, there is another title Jeff's just handed me. The good news just keeps on coming. After Trauma Centre, Bruce Willis will play boxing trainer Customato in Corner Man. Written and directed by Rupert Friend, best known for playing Peter Quint in the TV series Homeland. This promises to be something of a departure for Bruce Willis. You mean it's not shit? (laughs) Quite possibly in this case, Neil. It was D'Amato who found and coached the young Mike Tyson. It could be interesting. However, I work on the rule that if it was good, Jeff wouldn't be giving it to me in the movie news section. Remember last month I said I felt cleansed by the movie news? Forget it. I'm back down in the gutter again. Thanks, Jeff, mate. But you're looking up at the stars, Graham. In this instance, Bruce, Mel and Gerard. OK, music break as we prepare for the arrival of Elijah. That sounds very science fiction. Are you back in your comfort zone, Graham? Indeed I am. That was part of Wendy Carlos's score from the original Tron movie, made way back in 1982. I'm still in junior school then. You must have been held back at least 20 years then, Neil. <laughs> this is something I'm really looking forward to, a discussion on the Tron film with Elijah. Jeff, start us off. So, our At The Flicks team are back with Elijah. Hello, Elijah, how are you doing? Doing great. Excellent. Yeah. This month, we're going to be talking about Tron and its sequel, Tron Legacy. What are your thoughts on both of those films, Elijah? I like Tron Legacy a lot. I remember the first time I watched it, it stuck with me for days. I don't exactly know what made it stick with me so much. You know, there are kind of philosophical ideas in there. All the production is beautiful. The music is great, uh, all that stuff. And I'm sure we'll come back to those later. But that one really had an impact on me when I watched it. And uh, the original, it's, it's fine. So had you seen the original before you saw Tron Legacy? No, I didn't. It's kind of like with Blade Runner. I watched them backwards. No, you got it in the right order this time, uh, in my opinion. Like Blade Runner, and I think we're going as we talk through Tron and Tron Legacy, there's going to be a lot of references to Blade Runner because I think there are a lot of similarities. And the world building in Tron Legacy is just fantastic. Yeah, it is. So I watched Tron again last night just to get ready to to have this discussion with you today. And one of the things that struck me 
is even with Tron, which was come out in 1982, and funny enough, like Blade Runner was also a big flop in its year, you've got this level of different societies. You know, you've got the inside of the computer where you've got all the lights flashing and then you come to the outside world and more often than not, the camera's looking down. So it looks like a circuit board. Did you pick up on that and the fact yeah, that they... each each layer has its own society? I, I don't think I thought of it that way, but yeah. it's the, that kind of visual representation. It's a... Um a time lapse of the city and so you see the cars like power running through the circuits and the, the buildings although i did laugh when the jeff bridges character flynn who's been discredited and now runs a video game shop and there was nobody in that video game shop under the age of 25 yeah like like they would be but you know when the jeff bridges character goes into the other world the computer world there's this whole thing in there about are you a user and it's almost like, you know, I've come down from another place. And if you believe in users, you're persecuted, almost like in, you know, Roman games. If you don't believe in users, you become part yeah. of the fascist uh, empire. And then you have the user that comes among you and is a kind of salvation. Yeah. I thought those were really interesting ideas. I don't developed a whole lot, or I don't think they're developed. It seemed more to be about the idea of the digital. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Steven Lisberger has created a world, again, he's trying to do a world builder, and I know that the effects don't hold out. Some of the direction of actors is abysmal. But as you say, it's layered with ideas, that whole thing of the the Roman gladiatorial combat, the user that almost, that in the end, Jeff Bridges, the character that comes in, sacrifices himself so that everybody else can live. Yeah, he jumps into the, he jumps into the natural. The iconic images are cool. And there are a couple sequences, like when they're in that crystal cavern type thing with the water that's just pure energy that they're drinking. Those are pretty awesome, but uh, ah, it's it was kind of painful to watch because it's so the everything is so dated. And I realize it wasn't necessarily at the time, but whew. yeah, and I, I'd agree. I saw it on a very large screen uh, in a great cinema, great sound system, and at the time when I saw it. I thought, wow, this is just fantastic because we'd never seen anything like it. But even then, I thought some of the acting's not great and I'm enjoying the digital stuff and I'm enjoying the the world building and that sort. But when I watched it uh, the other day, uh, again, it was terrible. I know I, I actually was looking for the story. I was looking for the characters their acting ability and the cinematography, and there was nothing there. It was just very old effects, which didn't really do much. And I, and I thought, this is terrible compared to what I remember it being. And at the time, a young guy just starting in the computer industry, I was blown away with what they were doing. And I was probably dazzled or, or maybe brainwashed mm -hmm. a bit by just the, the spectacle of it. Now coming back to it and looking at it with 21st century view, it's just dreadful, absolutely terrible. And I didn't think any of the characters worked. I thought it was incredibly slow. I, I Because the one thing I can remember when I watched it the mm -hmm. first time is thinking how fast everything is and how it zips along like it would in a computer. And then I'm looking at it now and I'm seeing the tanks chasing the motorbikes, the light cycles, and thinking, oh, come on, move it. You know, everything's mm. really slow. Yeah. Well, it zipped around like a computer from the 80s. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So incredibly slow. Incredibly slow.
You know, there are some interesting design elements, like the uh, the main ship. The light cycles are cool, design-wise, yeah. not in look, because they have no texture to them at all. No, everything's very flat. And I kept trying to figure out how that one program died when it had, like, no damage to it at all. <laughs> he just kind of, I don't know, they, they have that accident, and then they, they hide away in this thing. He finds out that Flynn's a user and just dies. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. And I'm assuming it was supposed to be poignant, but no, no. I think you gotta have good characters for the to, for the poignancy to work. And and yet all of this is so different in Tron Legacy. Yes, very different. Yeah, you've got worlds that work, speed, texture. All the things you're saying is wrong with Tron. Would you say they got right with Tron Legacy? Absolutely. They repeated a lot of the design elements. So the ship that Clue's riding on to the portal, it's the same one that using the original you know, the light cycle. They bring back one of the light cycles. The one that um, Sam takes to the city with uh, Zeus, but they actually focused on the story. I think it helped that they had Damon Lindelof and that other guy from Lost to to pen it. Yeah, definitely. Well, there is no comparison because there wasn't any story as far as I could see in in the original. In Legacy, they really were focused in on the story, the characters, and of course everything Obviously, everything was rendered brilliantly, and they picked up some motifs from the first Tron, but I thought it was just such a spectacularly much better done job. This is going to come across as slightly facetious. It's not meant to be. No, here we go. It's a straight question. (laughs) So when we spoke last month about Blade Runner, I said one of the hooks for me in the original Blade Runner was it went 40 years back to film noir, 40 years forward into science fiction. The hook in Tron that did work for me is it's a remake of The Wizard of Oz. Okay, let's let's parse that, shall we? <laughs> so he's gone into another world, another dimension. <laughs> he's trying to get to an emerald city, you know, it, full of colour, full of lights, and a lot of it's green. <laughs> he's meeting friends along the way. He's also, when he's tracking at the end on that beam, he's on a yellow brick road. Oh, very good. No. I stand by this. <laughs> Elijah, what do you think? Am I raving? Yes. Well, I don't know if I would look that far into it, to be honest, but I can see where you're coming from. I think if it is an homage to it, it's a very poor one. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very that. good. Okay, whereas in Tron Legacy, you've got the moment where they're doing their journey and they stop at Michael Sheen's club where he does a version of Bowie. Yeah. And I thought that was, you know, again, a level of invention that the first one yes. didn't have. He immediately became an iconic character just by virtue of him being absolutely insane. Yeah. The, he, he's played so well. That sleazy um, bar owner who's also a double-crossing traitor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Typical Welsh then, really. Shoot <laughs> um, <laughs> down my entire nation there. Um, let's, let's touch on the music for a moment. With a longbow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in the first film, we've got Wendy Carlos, who'd done Clockwork Orange and The Shining, did the score for Tron, very digital, very electronic. And in the sequel, you've got Daft Punk doing um, a very rhythmic score. Yeah. How, how do both those scores work for you, Elijah? There's no comparison. Daft Punk did an incredible job of merging orchestral with their signature kind of digital sound and making it a very driving force that kind of it helps grounds all the scenes with what they needed to be. So all the intense action scenes are made more intense and more awesome. And the kind of softer moments are made softer and more meaningful with the music that they have. I think they just knocked out of the park. And going to the original, 
I don't remember anything from that score at all. It didn't stand out. It's a cold score, and I can see why it doesn't stand out. And I do agree with you that I think that the music in the second film is better and it does drive it. And again, the sequel, and this is the irony of this, the sequel, to my mind, and I'll be interested in your view, is made by people who loved the original but knew they could better it. Do you think that's correct? I think you're right. I think they're, they loved the ideas that were present in the original. I think they loved the, the world that was hinted at and kind of shown in bits and pieces. And they wanted to show that world, but that world has been lived in and um, in, in much more realized, got some decent actors and actually had a great director in uh, Kaczynski. And I think it's... Is it the, Kaczynski? Yeah. Yes. I think the director is the key here. And I think the director uh, for the original Tron was very poor, very poor. And I think that that also trickles through to his use of music because you need the music to enhance things. And he just didn't know what he was doing, really. So he had all this cool tech and it looked cool in the in the 80s. And then he couldn't do anything with the script. He couldn't do anything with the actors because he's not really an actor's director. And he couldn't enhance it with the music. So it just fails. When I went back to it, I just thought this is failing on every level. And in Legacy, of course, they've got a decent director yes, and he knows every everything links together and works as a complete unit rather than just disparate components in the first one. It's just, yeah, it's a very different film and a very accomplished film, I think, the second one, compared to the, the first one, which was just a lot of eye candy. Would you agree, Elijah? Yeah, I think the director for the first Tron, he had more, he was more fascinated with computers and and, you know what? What can the world made by computers look like? And and here we'll we'll name this character Bit. We'll name this character. Oh, I forget. They all had computer names for the programs. Yeah, clues. And he was fascinated by that. But yeah, he had no idea, no no idea how to make a story, and no idea how to make it work. And so things happen. Like Flynn says, like I gotta level with you. I'm a user. Like oh, no way. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so it everything's random and and, but to, and and when he kisses the the program that's made to look like the girl that he's not with that tron's programmer is with i don't, I don't know it was it was also random it was almost painful yes. to watch it was just like you know i could i could not direct a film to save my life but i could probably have a better go at it than this guy because yeah it yeah. especially when you have someone like jeff bridges yes how frustrated must he have been to come to work every day? Well, let me tell you about Jeff Bridges on that set because on the set they design in the arcade games, so they yeah. had them there. They couldn't get Bridges on to film because he was hooked on the video games. <laughs> yeah, because they were more interesting than yeah. his day job. Yeah. yeah, and I can see why. Yeah, but that really is lasting a long time, Elijah. Every time I laugh, it just kicks in. <laughs> Okay. It's all right, we'll have Neil talking. You'll never laugh again. Yeah, um, we'll be serious. Yeah. Um, but I just want to go back to that music and, and Wendy Carlos' score, and I could see what he was trying to do. He wanted to create this futuristic world, and so clearly he was influenced by Clockwork Orange, and he brought in Carlos to do that, a similar type score for the music that she did there. And I think that's what he tried, and it didn't work because it alienates you rather than connecting you with the characters. So yeah, my question to you, and anybody can go for this one, would that film have worked with a John Williams score? I think it would have worked with a Vangelis score. 
or worked better. I don't think it would work. I don't think Williams would have fit the world that Tron is set in. Yeah, I think that Vangelis's more sweeping sounds, more warmth to his his music and uh, and his electronic sounds are, are tend to reflect Mediterranean upbringing and that sort of thing, and are very warm and melodic and always Vangelis always reminds me of the sea for some reason, the Mediterranean, really, and that warmth. And so I think that would have brought a bit of bit more warmth into the film, but I still think the director would have screwed it up. Yeah, yeah I've think, got a real you know, downer there's, there's on a lot of directors today. And I think one of the problems that we have with uh, a lot of modern films, especially in uh, comic book films, where you don't notice the music, it's not because the music is actually poor or bad. It's because the directors have no idea how to use it in the film to make it better. So they just kind of use pretty music for nice scenes or sad music when it's sad and then the intense music when it's intense but then they they don't know how to bring in the themes to make it around how to do that or this or that and so i think that that hurts the the lack of that the ability to use music you know hurts a film almost more than anything else i think black panther did a great job with its music but that's the only one i think marvel Um, have been terrible with their with their music and I hate myself for saying this, yeah. not just Marvel, I think DC as well. I mean, if you compare Man of Steel to Superman back in the 70s... Yeah, there's no iconic... There's, ca- no, there's no catch, there's no theme to, to hook you in. Uh, and Marvel's Oh, the see, same. I would completely disagree on Man of Steel. Okay. Completely. Uh, I think Hans Zimmer did an incredible job with Man of Steel, especially in that sequence where he learns to fly. And, and it is a great score. For me, it's a different type of iconic. You know, John Williams is iconic because it's a fanfare. It's very bright, it's very happy, and it works for, for Donner's Superman and Christopher Reeve. That kind of sound, that kind of thematic structure would not have worked at all with um, with Superman in Man of Steel or, or Superman in modern times. I think that's what Zack Snyder did something brilliant when he got Hans Zimmer to score for him because he knew he was going to get a completely different sound, a completely different sonic texture. And I think uh, Snyder actually knows how to use music in his films and to, to make them better, to make every sequence work. I think Christopher Nolan is also excellent with this. He also uses Hans Zimmer. Yeah. They go a little bit overboard in the music. So the music takes over everything, but I, I think you've got a very, very fair point. I'm writing down your rewatch man of steel. So I have to go back to that now. I, I think I see what you're saying. I think you're right. You know, what worked in the seventies isn't going to work now. I mean, I listen to the man of steel soundtrack a lot. I may be slightly biased in what I'm saying here. Hmm. No, 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 you're not. No, no, I think this is a very fair point. That but what about, I'm, yeah, sorry, what about Marvel? I mean, Black Panther stood out for me because of the music. The music was exceptional, but nothing else. I, I can't think of anything in the. I, the can, I, I can actually think of one that does work what, for me. What is that? Uh, Patrick Doyle score oh, for Thor, pa- I think. Thor, right, it's, yeah. It's really I'd good. probably agree yes, on that. That one is great. Yeah. yeah. But apart from I that, I thought the Thor Ragnarok score fell flat. Yeah, you know it's nice to listen to by itself, but it didn't work in the movie. The only time where it, like I felt something in in Ragnarok was when they used Patrick Doyle's theme from the original. I think the Avengers theme is actually pretty good, but they just don't use it ever. That is no, I I do think that's a very fair point. And Avengers Endgame will be full of this when the trailers start hitting you hard and fast. You're going to get that theme all the time. But as Elijah's saying, when you get to the film, I bet it ain't in there in the beginning. No. If it's done well, it should be like the Fellowship theme in Lord of the Rings, Mm. where you get that full rousing theme when they come together, and then as the film goes on, it breaks away. 
as the fellowship, you know, kind of breaks up. The only other superhero theme that I really like is uh, Wonder Woman. I think that's got a very powerful theme. And I think her constant, uh, that little motif they have whenever she's about to start doing some action is always nice. And you know, oh, well, that's Wonder Woman. This is really interesting. I'm, I'm, I haven't thought about this a lot. All of the Marvel's music is, as you said correctly, is happy music where, and then exciting music and then sad music. And it's all very generic there's nothing stand out. There's apart no hook. From, there's no hook. And apart from Black Panther, Wonder Woman, and probably Man of Steel, I I really struggle with. No, but, but Elijah's right that Alan Silvestri has made a really great theme for the Avengers that they hardly use. DC had Hans Zimmer for Man of Steel. He came back for Batman v Superman with Junkie XL. And I think they did a, a very good score for the film. And again, Snyder knows how to use it, so it he uses it correctly. And then you've got Wonder Woman's theme, which is used again by... Um, Rupert Gregson Williams. Yeah. And Rupert comes back for Aquaman. Can Sorry, you... we kind of got a little... No, we were completely off, off the topic. track, but this is absolutely fascinating. And I want to go back to Zack Snyder, and I think one of his best scores is Watchmen. Uh, I think the music score in Watchmen, yes, yeah. Tyler Bates, is brilliant. Ah, he had some I've really good um, yeah. work with Tyler Bates. Even 300, although it's a uh, kind of a copy of a lot of... Uh, what is it, Titus? Yeah, they use a lot of themes from that. Okay. Um, from, oh, what's this composer's name? Elliot Goldenthal. So coming back to Tron Legacy. <laughs> <laughs> the Although, most, that's got to be the most awkward segue ever. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, no segue there. However, it was the most fascinating discussion on film music I've had for a while, so thank you. Next time we'll talk about the work of Jerry Goldsmith, my hero. You can see a, a long discussion on that one coming. I do agree with you, Tron Legacy used its music score extremely effectively. It's drive-in, it's immersive, and it just makes those action sequences heart-pounding. I think we're all in agreement that Tron Legacy is a much better film than Tron. Am I right on that? Yeah, um, certainly from my point of view, it, absolutely, I, I would give uh, it's a hundred times better. You know, it's it's that it is night and day. I thought, is this the film I saw all those years ago? Because it, you know, I must have been in another dimension because I I remember coming out and going, oh, it's brilliant and it's got all this tech in it. But you know, looking back on it, it just that's all it has in it is the tech and the look. It doesn't have anything else. And Tron Legacy has interesting things like story and music that fits and (laughs) characters and actors and cinematography and proper textured mapping and, and yeah, just um, night and day. So you agree it's better than Tron? I probably, to sum up, Jeff, I'd agree. Yeah, Yeah, good, right. (laughs) So, Elijah, there's been a lot of talk of another Tron film or even a TV series. Would you like to see one of those? And where would you want them to take the story from where we are now? Um, I think it would be very interesting to see that kind of how the world began. Because in the in the Tron films, you know, they already exist. In the 80s, you know, you've got that one program who works for a banker, one program that works for an insurance. Yeah, they didn't take that over in uh, in Legacy, thank God. No, no, they didn't. But uh, I think it would be kind of interesting. Really like I'm kind of focused on that period where Blue takes over. And so the ISOs are being wiped out. And there's that genocide, though it would have to be a very, very, very dark film. <laughs> or something from Netflix, I thought, or the TV series. Yeah, like TV that. But I think it would make for some interesting. Buy the rights from Disney, that'd be great. Ah, no, there's, you've just killed it straight away, haven't you? Sorry, Disney are cancelling everything with Netflix. 
Disney are in a strong position this year. You've got Aladdin. You've got Dumbo. Dumbo. You've got Lion King. You've got the Marvel movies. Yeah, Captain which... America apparently made $155 million this weekend in America alone. Captain Marvel. Did I say that? What did I say? Captain America. Oh, sorry. Captain Marvel. Yeah, made 155 It's hard million. to tell the difference with all these names. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was an interesting journey, talking about Tron and Tron Legacy that went just about everywhere. <laughs> we, we've reached an agreement, but we speak a lot about film music. And yeah. anybody, anybody listening who wants to make any comment on that, please let us know and we'll incorporate that into future discussions. Elijah, once again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Elijah. Yeah. Cheers. And we'll see you on the next one. That's been great. Thank you. All right. Looking forward to it. Not a true classic, but still fun. Thank you, Elijah, for that excellent discussion. And we look forward to catching up again next month to discuss another great movie. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. OK, guys, off to get those movie reviews ready. So it only remains for us to say... Maybe we can put you on the grid in Tron, Jeff. Yeah, that'll be one sport you will lose, Neil. Let's get those light cycles ready. OK, time for me to leave, I think. And to everyone else, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.